This is a very special November 9th episode of the Daily Wrestling News Show, where we are on a mission to teach, learn, and remember the history of professional wrestling with everyone that wants to join us. Uh, our subject today is the Montreal Screwjob. We are on the 25th anniversary of the event, uh, and this episode is special because John and I are here together. We're doing video, uh, and John, were you watching live? When the Montreal screw job happened, yes, I absolutely was, and uh, I was confused you know, during that time. It wasn't all that odd. We'll get into this later, but yes, I was confused at the ending. I was wondering what was happening, and boy, what would play out in the next couple of weeks in rumor and dirt sheet and everything else was just a a wow. You know when. So what, 1997, I would have been 13 years old. Um, I didn't really realize that dirt sheets existed. I thought I knew more about professional wrestling than anybody else I knew. Um, so I really was in the dark on this. I had no idea what was going on. And um, I know we haven't really talked about what we're talking about, I guess, really. But um, yeah, when the Montreal Screwjob happened, I was like, what? What what's I see Brett making the, you know, the WCW thing on the TV and even Jim Ross said, "Oh, this might be his last night in the WWF." At the very beginning of the Survivor Series 1997. So like, you know, I could piece those pieces together, but the finish, the finish of that match was just a head scratcher for me. I I just had no idea. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you know, it was the it was the dawning of high-speed internet, which uh, gave birth to message boards and, you know, that you weren't receiving your dirt sheets through the mail, which I never did. You, you would go online and you would get, you, you, someone would be talking about it here, someone would be talking about it there. And I, you know, it was kind of the worst kept secret that Brett was on his way out in all likelihood, yeah. but you didn't know anything. You, you, right. you, you still it was still that golden time in wrestling where you didn't know till it played out in front of you on television and as this was playing out in front of you you were saying to yourself in all likelihood what the hell is going on here yeah exactly and it's funny to me you know as we have been reviewing all of these tales from the territory things uh personal issues draws money keeps coming up over and over and over and uh, if you hear, you know, anybody talk about it, they always, the much more familiar personal issue that everybody knows is the Bret Hart, Shawn Michaels thing. Sure. You know, that if you hear anybody comment on that phrase, personal issues draw money, they always refer to Bret and, Bret and Shawn. So I want to start the show by going over some interesting things that maybe people don't realize have happened in wrestling history. Maybe a lot of people do, but the Montreal screw job was far from the first screw job to happen. It wasn't even the first screw job in Montreal. So uh, if if we back up, there are there are three that I am I'm fairly aware of, and there are probably more. There may be some I'm forgetting that I I knew and then forgot. But the first one is called the Battle of the Bite, and it happened in Montreal in 1931. There was Cornette talks about, yeah. Yes. And Dark Side of the Ring, Jim Cornette brings it up and talks about it. Uh, there was some 
politicking going around, going around who was supposed to be the AWA world champion. Uh, there were promoters that were um, kind of battling it out. And the, the long story short is Strangler Lewis actually went into the ring and kind of in the same fashion that Bruno won the WWF title, he said, I'm, you know, we can do this the easy way or the hard way. Right. And so his opponent said, okay, we'll do it the easy way. So Strangler Lewis becomes the champion. And this sent the promoters into a frenzy. So then they're trying to figure out the one promoter who was, uh, you know, against Strangler wants to get the title back in his sort of domain. So this leads to Montreal when they have this opportunity. It's supposed to be Strangler Lewis defending the AWA World Championship against Henry DeGlaine. It's a two out of three falls match. As agreed, DeGlaine takes the first fall. In those days, when you do a two out of three falls match, the uh, they take a break. They actually go back to the locker rooms. Huh. And so and so they go back to the locker rooms. And while they're in the locker room, DeGlaine or somebody else um, that's in on the, the bruise here bites DeGlaine. We don't know if it's, you know, DeGlaine who bit himself or somebody else did the job, whatever. So then he kind of conceals that injury. Well, you know, when they, they come back out for the second fall. Yeah. So DeGlaine goes down for a pin on Strangler Lewis. And when he does, he comes up in a frenzy that he's like holding, holding his arm or whatever that he has been bitten. And the referee disqualifies Strangler Lewis. Now, Typically, a, you know, you adult doesn't change hands on his qualification. That might not even be true back in 1931. Yeah. But the fact of the matter is a two out of three falls, and he took the second fall. So that put Strangler Lewis, you know, put him out. So he, so, so this was the, and this happened in Montreal in 1931. This was the original Montreal screw job. <laughs> that's an incredible story. Yeah, I, I remember hearing uh, Cornette run it down uh, on Dark Side. And, I was, you know, like you said, is okay. Well, that's a disqualification. I, I guess I didn't realize it was a two out of three falls match. So therefore, politics yeah. and wrestling not a great combination. Yeah, fair. One hundred percent. Yeah, but yeah. So that's and the, the, I'm trying to remember. He also brings up the fact that there had been other screw jobs and that he had floated that idea. When yeah. they were all sitting around trying to figure out how to get the belt off Brett in a way that works for everyone, or if it comes down to it, are we just going to have to screw him? But yeah, there, there's so much surrounding this topic. We could talk about this for three hours. Yeah. Well, we're gonna we're not going to. No, no <laughs> so we're gonna try and make an easy, digestible chunk. All right. That's screw job number one that I'm aware of. The uh, the second one I've kind of come into knowledge about fairly recently, and that's. Bruno San Martino winning the Worldwide Wrestling Federation Championship in 1963 mm -hmm. from Buddy Rogers. The idea going in is that if Rogers knew he was going to drop the belt, he would no show. He would, right. you know, get sick or whatever. He would injury, yeah. Yeah, exactly. So, so they lead Rogers to believe that Bruno's going to submit to the figure four. And when Bruno gets to the ring, he kind of says to rogers like look you can you know try your hardest but <laughs> i'm winning this match uh, i'm gonna try my hardest 
And the match only lasts about 45 seconds. Bruno runs across the ring, picks up Buddy Rogers over his shoulder into like a backbreaker type of thing. Yeah. Or a bear hug. Yeah. And whispers the referee in his ear. Out. Yeah. Yeah. It whispers in his ear, you know, you can either give up or I can break your back. And <laughs> Bruno says he didn't hear the submission, but all of a sudden the ref was calling for the bell and he was the new champion. Yes. And that and for years. Right. And then that, that set off, you know, clearly that's the finish that they were going for because Bruno be, remained champion for a million and a half years. <laughs> uh, and the, the, so that would have been under the, the direction of Vince McMahon senior. Right. So the last one, and this should be more than anything, uh, you know, reason, reason to believe that this, this whole Montreal thing was on the table is that the fabulous Mula defeated Wendy Richter for the WWF wow. championship. Oh, uh, no, go ahead, yeah, go ahead. exactly. In 1985, and we covered this on episode 85 of the Daily Wrestling News Show. Richter was wrestling without a contract, and Vince McMahon had made her an offer. And Richter said, "You know, I'd really like to talk it over with my lawyer." And at the time, Wendy Richter's star power was enormous. She was actually headlining house shows when Hogan wasn't there. Which, if you talk, think about this, 1985. There were what three women on the roster, so for a you know a women's match to be headlining, this is incredible. So this this was star power kind of left over from the Cindy Lauper uh, affiliation at WrestleMania. Sure. So Richter's huge, and Vince McMahon thinks this is a big risk that his title is around somebody's waist who he doesn't have under contract. So Richter is meant to defend the championship at Madison Square Garden in front. Uh, against spider lady and spider lady comes out and within about three seconds of watching spider lady work you know that it's the fabulous moolah so moolah pulls down uh pulls down richter and the referee counts one two three despite the fact that richter is clearly kicking out yes and uh and richter was obviously upset after the match she took swipes at at fabulous moolah she got screwed there in madison square garden john did you watch that one live or definitely or, did that, not watch that one live. In fact, I didn't wa go back and find it for myself until you told me about the fact that you were writing about it and uh, that it was, you know, readily available on YouTube. And I went and watched it. And, uh, you know, like you said, the, the ending is so screwy. You're just like, really? They got away with that? But, you know, the part of the story was, uh, like you said, she wasn't under contract. And like Vince... I was just reading something yesterday. Vince was like sticking a contract under her nose as she's on her way to the ring that night. Yeah. And, and I think the big sticking point, if I remember correctly, was that she basically in that contract would be signing over. And this was before the age of stone cold and all that signing over all her merchandising. So she would basically mm -hmm. get almost nothing from, you know, uh, uh, merch sales and whatnot. And she was like, can I read it first? I'm on my way out to a match. Like, literally, I'm on my way out to a match. And, you know, when he didn't get the signature, Moolah did what Moolah had to do. And as we know from the AWA uh, Tales from the Territory, Vince doesn't negotiate. <laughs> so, <laughs> that's clear. He had a plan and a backup plan. So, all right. So those are the screw jobs I'm aware of. But do you know of any other ones? Uh, I, I don't know great detail about them, but they go as far back as Gotch and Hackenschmidt in 1911. Mm. There, there, once again, it was a two out of three fall match. 
I, I think uh, Hackenschmidt had hurt his knee, so they were looking for a way to make him look okay while still losing. And Gosh just went out, and you know it was agreed he would take the first fall, and then he quick counted him to a second fall, and you know Hackenschmidt was like, well, you know, what just happened? Right. So yeah, it, it is it is ingrained into the history of the business. And, uh, you know, uh, like, the, once again, Tales, uh, the Calgary episode, where they kind of patted Stu Hart on the back by saying he was, a you know, a man of integrity in a an industry full of con men. Right. It's no surprise when this stuff happens. Because, yeah. by and large, we love wrestling, but wrestling is run by and has a history of being run by some terrible people. Yeah. And people and really think, do terrible things. I, I think the reason why Montreal is such a big deal is that those other ones we talked about were kind of hush hush under the table, and like the average wrestling fan or anybody outside the business wouldn't really know about those things. Right. And when Montreal came around, it, the business was exposed, I guess, at that point, and that was the that was the one of the big impacts that we'll talk about later. But I guess here's. Let's go through the essential facts of yes. what happened. So in 1996, Bret Hart gets an offer from WCW for $3 million a year. Vince McMahon counters Bret, or WCW's offer and gives Bret a 20-year contract for essentially the same money by, over that 20 years. Bret also gets, with that 20-year contract, a 60-day um, creative control right. at the end. So he can, you know, they have to mutually agree upon what's going to happen with his character in the last 60 days of the contract. So the WWF is getting slammed in the ratings by WCW and Vince decides that he's overpaying Brett, that Brett is overpriced and Brett and Vince decide that the best thing for both parties would be for Brett to see if he can go back and get his WCW offer. Now, sorry to interrupt you, but the thing that I, uh, in researching this episode, the thing that I, I knew about the 20-year contract and that within less than a year, Vince already wanted out of it. The thing that was stunning to me, I guess I had just never heard this fact about the contract. The way the contract was structured, Brett was already admitting to the fact that he only had about three years left. Yeah, He was going, he was going to get about a million and a half a year for the next three years as an active performer. And then he was going to go into like that monsoon role, the, the right, right hand man behind the scenes guy, the number one guy that would, you know, I guess eventually turn out to be Jim Ross for a good portion of time. He was going to be the man behind the scenes. He was going to get much less, but because he essentially had not quite a lifetime, but it was going to stretch out over 20 years, he would wind up making the same amount that he would make in that WCW contract that was solely as a performer. So. And what's interesting is like 20, uh, 1996 money in today's, like with inflation, probably would not be that great. I don't know if they have some sort of uh, adjustment for inflation in those types of contracts, but that would not be good, actually. Um, so, so I'm sorry we don't have, if you're in one of the groups commenting, we don't have the name, but somebody says AJ Styles versus Kurt Angle and Impact might have been one. 2011. Yeah, so that, we'll that's, I definitely wasn't watching that. We'll be looking into that for sure. Absolutely. So stay tuned. <laughs> um, so that's the structure of his contract. 
like I mentioned, they decide that the best thing would be for Brett to go and see if he can get his WCW deal because um, what was the phrase that Brett said? Uh, Brett said that uh, hemorrhaging money or something like that, like was, was something. Do you remember what the phrase was? I don't remember the exact phrase. I just know that they had been working in the red for quite some time. Uh, and I'm, I'll let you get to it if you can get to it. But that wasn't the case by the time they got to Montreal. Yeah, yeah, that's that's true. Um, so they go. So Brett gets his deal from WCW, um, and so Brett is the WWF champion though during these negotiations. And Vince decides that Brett is going to lose the WWF championship to Shawn Michaels at Survivor Series. Now we talked about the personal issues draw money. There were obviously an uh, there was obviously an on-screen rivalry between these two. There was also an off-screen rivalry between these two as well. The things that they said on, t on TV, well, it appeared that in some ways these things were kind of vetted ahead of time, uh, like go ahead and say these things. Yeah. Uh, it it doesn't really feel like either person felt that, <laughs> that way. You know, Brett refers to, in sort of a homophobic way, Sean's appearance in the Playgirl magazine and... Sean's talking about Brett having sunny days, referring to Sonny and possibly a, a, an affair or something. That so then Brett has to go explain to his family and stuff like that. So this thing became like a really heated thing behind the scenes. They actually get in a fight, and famously, uh, you know, a chunk of Sean's hair gets pulled out, and he presents it to McMahon and the the bookers and says, "This is an unsafe working environment and stuff like that." Um, so all this stuff is happening, but Brett says to Sean, I don't have a problem putting you over. You know, I, I, I will do that. I, you know, I don't have a problem losing to you in Montreal or whatever. And Sean says, I appreciate that, but I wouldn't do the same for you. And there is the crux of the whole problem. Yeah. Sean had already made it known that he wasn't going to put over anyone in the territory. Uh, during you know during his his time with and in fact i read something recently where leading up to that like okay the person on the other side of the argument the per obviously you and i i think you and i are brett fans so uh, got that. So, so it's going to be a little slanted this argument but the person on the other side is always going to say you know the person who says bread is wrong well you got to do the job on the way out of the territory you got to put the new guy over it's just yeah and mcmahon would go on tv after the whole fallout and keep using the phrase the time-honored tradition brett mm -hmm. was not willing to do the time-honored tradition sean michaels had dropped three titles like within the last two years leading up to this where he faked an injury or claimed an injury or just walked away so that lost he wouldn't actually have to lose. Yeah. Yeah. The famous lost his smile and, and you know, the, the knee injury that was going to be a career threatening. And, you know, he was back in the ring a month later. And then you have Brett say, I'll take care of you. You will always be safe with me and I will put you over. And the asshole that Michaels is, <laughs> just leave it at that and take the win. He had to be sure to say, that's great. I wouldn't do it for you. And that sets us up for Montreal. Brett basically decides when he hears that from Sean that he's not 
forget it. He's he's not going to put Sean over it, especially not in Canada. So, you know, so then they have an, a horrible issue trying to come up with a finish for this. And there's all kinds of, you know, you can hear it from Bruce Pritchard. You can hear it from Jim Cornette. You can hear all of the stuff that goes on trying to determine a finish that, remember, Brett has creative control. So he he has that worked into his contract. So anything that happens, he has to agree to. And so, so Brett's not going to agree to a clean loss. And he says, you know, so they still don't have a finish heading when they get to Montreal. They don't know what's going to happen. And when, so there is, I should mention this whole time, this whole time from 96 through the Montreal Screwjob and beyond, Brett is doing a documentary, Wrestling with Shadows. And with the cooperation of the WWF. So a lot of this is all being recorded for this documentary. And on the day of Survivor Series, Brett goes in to have a meeting with Vince McMahon to talk about the finish. And he's wearing a wire, wire which is a little shady. And there was, it's a, it was a little shady and it, and it was, but but at um, this point, Brett has, an, uh, you know, multiple people have told him, don't put yourself in a compromising position because right. there is a chance of you getting screwed over. You know this because you've gone back and forth. You've, you know, both of them have laid out multiple scenarios. Brett went as far as to say, like, you know, I will hand the belt to you the next night on Raw. I will lose at a house show to Steve Lombardi. Whatever you want to yeah. do it, I just will not lose to Sean in montreal right right he yeah he'll lose to any you know lose to anybody whatever and what he'd like to do is hand just relinquish the title the next night on raw um now common sense you know if i'm looking back at the situation that's not going to work that, that's not good for wwf you know or anybody but vince doesn't necessarily tell brett that's out of the question and what they cut what they what they come to is that it's gonna be a schmoz finish, you know. They're gonna be in the ring and then you know DX and the Heart Foundation are going to hit the ring and it's gonna be a no contest. That's what everybody thinks going in. Yeah. Brett had already like John mentioned of the whole Brett had kind of in the back of his mind that he could get screwed. So he has conversation with Earl Hebner, the referee, you know ahead of time and they're like you know earl's like i'll you know i would never do that to you well right before earl walks through the curtain jerry briscoe pulls him aside and says here's what's going to happen and earl's like i can't do that and and briscoe's like is bret hart going to pay you right and so earl's like well i need a job so instead of the whole schmoz finish what happens is sean puts brett in the sharpshooter and earl hebner immediately calls for the bell and you know Another weird thing about Vince McMahon is at ringside for like almost this whole match, which is yeah. kind of an anomaly as well. So, you know, something's up, but I think because Earl wasn't totally in on it till the last minute, I think Vince felt like he had to be out there. Which and Vince, uh, you know, as you, you read through the many, many retellings and inside stories by the finish, Vince is sitting next to the timekeeper and elbowing the timekeeper. Saying, ring the bell, ring the bell. As Earl's calling for it, you can hear Vince's voice saying, ring the bell, yes. ring the mother effing bell. You can oh, audibly yeah. hear it on the broadcast. Yeah, yep. you can. You, you Vince was there to make sure that if it came right down to it, 
and he had to step in, it was going to get done. So, so, so Brett realizes he's being screwed. He, and he, he, ne- he clearly never submits or whatever. And he reaches around to grab Sean to counter the, the sharpshooter. And then you have this like altercation between Vince and Brett. Brett spits on Vince. The camera zooms in on Vince so you can see the big loogie on him. Brett does the whole WCW thing on the TV. Um, and and that's the screw job. And in the backstage area, Brett punches Vince in the uh, and Vince Vince says, you know, I I was gonna give him a shot. I hoped that he wouldn't take it, but I was gonna give it to him. Yeah, um, not without warning though. Brett, yeah. Brett you know, he give you know, I think it was as the story goes, Undertaker basically went to Vince absolutely furious because he was the locker room leader and whatnot and said, you have to go talk to him. You have to apologize. And if it comes right down to it, you may have to to eat a punch. (laughs) He goes into the locker room. Brett says, basically, get the F out. I don't even want to look at you. And Vince, oh, we've got to talk about this. And Brett says, I'm going, I'm going to take a shower. If you're here when I come out, I'm knocking you the F out. Vince stuck around. Vince caught a haymaker. Yeah. You know, and there's a, so there's a lot of other things around this. Like, you know, you saw Undertaker was upset. Obviously, I believe, I think, Mick, I think Mankind, McFoley even kind of quit for like 10 minutes over uh, this. Well, yeah. Foley and all the members of the Hart Foundation basically went home. Like, they were supposed yeah. to continue the tour through Canada. I think that what the next night they were in Ottawa. And uh, the whole, by the end of the, by the end of the night, you know, the wrestling community doesn't really know 100% what has happened here. You Forgive me, the, the street cleaners coming by my window, of course, right at this moment. Um, uh, so you know, the wrestling community doesn't really know everything that has happened just yet the next night on Monday Night Raw. And by the end of the show, they start to realize no one from the Hart Fan, uh, Foundation is on this car tonight as yeah. here. And that's because... Mick Foley, as well as Owen and Davey Boy, they've all gone home. They, they're out of complete disgust. They have flown home instead of continuing continuing the Canadian tour. Uh, there is a comment that came in here. Did Brett have a good run in WCW? Uh, we're going to get to that in a second. Yeah. Uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> I think I, you know, I was listening to uh, Conrad Thompson talk about it this morning. And when they were talking about when Brett got the initial offer from WCW for the three million a year, um, one of the things that Vince McMahon said to Brett was they wouldn't know what to do with a Brett Hart, and that you know also led to the twenty-year contract. Uh, turns out, Facebook user, turns out uh, WCW would not know what to do with Brett Hart. So I'll get to that. Jesus. <laughs> so uh, okay, there was a whole. There's a little bit of you know like extra story that goes along with this there's nobody like nobody knew about this i mean you know bruce pritchard didn't know about it and he was a little hot about the fact that he didn't know about it but vince says you know i was protecting you or whatever um so if i told if you knew then you never would you know you could never say that you didn't know but so we talked about the vince mcmahon interview that he gave so brett brett for First, even before the 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 match, he actually went on and explained his, to do interviews and explained his side of things. And a lot of people say that he was exposed. He exposed the business in that moment. Vince, here's here's the time honored tradition quote. 
because I, I wrote it down. There is a time-honored tradition in the wrestling business that when someone is leaving, that they show the right amount of respect to the WWF superstars in this case that helped make you a superstar. You show the proper respect to the organization that helped you become who you are today. It's a time-honored tradition, and Bret Hart didn't want to honor that tradition, and that's something I never would have expected from Bret because he's known somewhat as a traditionalist in the business. It would not. It would have not crossed my mind that Brett would not have wanted to show the right amount of respect to the superstars and organizations that helped make him what he is today. That was Brett's decision. Brett screwed Brett. And boy, that Brett screwed Brett line will j just ring in history, won't it? <laughs> Absolutely. And and the fact that that quote you just read came from Vincent Kennedy McMahon makes it hilarious because as Facebook user here has uh, just said there, it was not about the fact that Brett wouldn't do a job. Sean was the one who wouldn't do a job. Yeah. Brett just, he didn't want to do it in Montreal. Yeah. He, was, he would have done it in Madison square guy. He would have obviously would have ruined the pay-per-view, but he had offered to do it the week before survivor series. I think they had a Madison square garden show. He had laid out multiple ways to get the belt off him. Everything from, like I said, counting the lights for Steve Lombardi at a house show to handing the belt to Vince on live TV, you know, and just get the, his whole thing was he didn't want to lose in Montreal and he wanted to go out on good terms. He wanted to have, there was also a plan written in that where he would address the fans on his way out the door just to say like, you know, Thank you for everything you've done for me. This, that, and the other, without mentioning where he was going. Not that it was any surprise to anyone where he was headed, but it was all Brett wanted to do was not lose in Montreal as a Canadian legend and whatnot. And he wanted to have a, you know, a last goodbye to the WWF fans. Yeah. So, what do you make of the impact thing? Like, the impact that the business is exposed at this point. I mean, I think most fans were kind of in on the in on it at the, this point. I mean, nobody was really walking around thinking wrestling was not predetermined, but no. a lot of people have an issue with Brett so openly talking about it on TV, and then Vince also basically admitting everything. It was the first time anything like that had happened, despite the fact that everybody was kind of in on the deal. Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, good. Uh, that's when people say the Montreal screw job changed wrestling forever. I think that's where it comes, where it kind of comes from is the fact that now it's, you know, people talk about it much more openly than any time before that. Right. But we were probably at least got to be close to 10 years. At least I know in my fandom, like I, I like I'm, I know you're a little younger than me, but you're just about the right age. I'm definitely the right age where we had gone through the time of, you know, ever doubting that everything was choreographed. Right. Like I grew up knowing that I, I still loved it, but I knew it was fake. I yeah. knew it was fake probably 10 years before that. So yeah. yes, this was, it was, it was monumental that guys were talking about it this openly, but it was the worst kept secret in the world. So yeah. I don't give any credence to, of all people on the planet, Bret Hart exposing the business. Yeah. Changed it in the sense that now it's more openly spoken about. But but yeah. So, uh, and 
there's a there's video and audio that showed this and people still buy Vince's fictional story. I believe you're referring to the the audio and video that's available of them talking about the various finishes that they were going through. So yeah, for sure. So tons and tons. We could talk, like you said, we could talk about Montreal's job forever. And we've already done it for 32 minutes. I don't think the match was that long. <laughs> um, there are people, and I don't want to speak ill of the dead, Scott Hall, but he, but probably the most public person to come out and say that the whole thing was a work. Yeah. And uh, he makes really good points, but come on. I mean, he says, why would the WWF cameras continue to roll close up, close up on Bret Hart as he spits on Vince McMahon and then go tight on Vince afterwards to show the big loogie and then allow Bret to do the whole WCW thing on TV on TV. And he's like, you know, so much came out of this in terms of the trajectory of the company. He's like, it was all a work. And you could, he said, you could see it, read it on their faces. And he said, I don't know. I never talked to Sean about this, which also seems crazy. They talked about everything. Really? He never talked to Sean about it? Come on. And secondly, now, I I don't even know if it's possible to find this now. I'm trying to remember, you know, going tight on Vince and the WCW thing. Weren't they off the air by that point? They went off the air like four minutes early. They would they would reuse, you know, once this became the biggest story in the history of wrestling, they would reuse that footage. But I don't remember. I'm not sure that that footage aired during the original event. I think you might be right. Yeah. yeah. I, I do think that the spit thing happened. I think that was that. I think you saw him spit, but I don't know that they got the close. Obviously, one of the cameras captured it, but I don't remember if during the pay-per-view we saw Vince, Yeah, you know, afterwards. Anyway. So, so okay, so it had a lasting impact. I, I there's To me, there's no way possible it was work. I know that there's a bunch of conspiracy theorists out there that think it's possible, but Come on. Um, I do want to tell you, you know, there were some questions about WCW. There, obviously, Brett's run in WCW sucked. Um, so bad that at Starcade 99, John, there was a fake screw job. <laughs> like, if you think, okay, the Montreal screw job is like the worst thing to ever happen. What would make it worse? A fake one. Another one. Like, exactly. One like, Trying to recreate it and doing a piss poor job, a, a scripted screw job, yeah. And so, in that situation, Bret Hart is champion, he's defending against Goldberg, and they go through three referees. And then Roddy Piper comes out, and he's going to be the official for the end of the match. Bret puts Goldberg in the sharpshooter, and Roddy calls for the bell. And what a horrible! Horrible finish. So obviously it didn't go over well with the WCW crowd. Brett forfeits the title because you know he's honorable and everything. Uh, and then the next night on on Nitro, he turns heel and beats down Goldberg anyway and, and wins the title. In Baltimore, that, that very famous building. <laughs> oh God, I didn't know it was in Baltimore. <laughs> and uh and 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 that wasn't the only time, you know, not only did they do it there, all right. That was obviously the most glaring and cringeworthy example of it they did so they tried they once again bringing brett in you know remember brett's first 
appearance on WCW pay per view, he was a referee. And was what it, was that Starcade or was it? Uh, I'm trying to remember. I think it was it Starcade or was it? Havoc? It has to be the yeah. It has to be Starcade '97 because Montreal was in November. And... Yeah. Yeah. This, this, okay. Um, but what happened was Brett was the was the referee for uh, Sting Zabisco versus. Oh yeah. Uh, Zabisco versus uh, Bischoff. Yeah. But he was hanging around for the main event of Sting versus Hogan. And remember, this was the culmination of 18 months of Sting in the rafters. This yep. was supposed to be the biggest night in the history of WCW with their two biggest stars and this, that, and the other thing. And Hogan allegedly bullies the referee into not quick counting him because what was supposed to play out was a quick count and then Hogan leaves and then they restart the match. Well, it really wasn't a quick count and everyone was kind of standing around like, all right, now what do we do? And luckily the production team was crap as well as, as well as the writing staff. Cause Brett picks up the microphone and what never really went out over the air. You only got kind of got like half of it. Cause they didn't make his mic live was he was like, Brett was uh, I swore this would never happen and it's never going to happen with me here. And he stopped the timekeeper from ringing the bell. And it was just, it just played out like crap. Sting would go on to win the match, but it just fell flat. And again, it was because the business spent, if you want to talk about the impact of that moment in Montreal, the business entirely spent years trying to either retell the story or right the wrongs of that yeah. night, uh, whether it be in real time or, you know, scripted, well, obviously mostly scripted. And, then, and again, there was, uh, you know, when uh, WWA, after WCW went out of business, WWA uh, tried to kickstart something in that vacuum. There was no competition for WWF. What did they decide to do? Bret Hart is their commissioner and they were going to do a, screwy finish in the main event where Bret Hart made sure someone didn't ring yeah. the bell and screw over the champion. Like we spent so much time rehashing this and reliving it because it was that important a night in the history of the business. And so a lot, so we talked about the negative part a lot. There is this thought process that Vince McMahon He'd go on, he would do that interview eight days that would air on Raw eight days after the event. And I mean, we, I, I read the long quote, and Vince did not come off as a face in that interview. I think that's what he was hoping. Right. He was hoping to explain himself and come off, you know, put the organization first and people would see it that way. He came off horrible and he leaned into it. And led to the creation of the Mr. McMahon character, which was probably the most successful heel in the history of the WWF. So, um, and that led to the whole Austin McMahon feud and everything like that, that was really a boom for the WWF business. And they took back over the ratings war from WCW and, you know, and we have the WWE today and in, in all its glory and record profits and, huge shows in Saudi Arabia and 
the UK and <laughs> everywhere. So yeah, it, it's a giant. It is. It essentially is the industry at this point, and that was kind of an inflection point. That you know, the WCW was beating the hell out of them, and that began. It would be, the funny thing was. They lost one of their greatest champions ever to their rival who was already kicking their ass. And without meaning to be, it kind of was a poison pill. Yeah. The other thing is there's a, so you have the, the dark side of the ring episode on this. You have the, uh, re, uh, Hit, hitman heart wrestling with shadows documentary that covers this in detail. Uh, I was just mentioning to John before we went on the air that, Conrad Thompson just put out a, a mega episode of something to wrestle uh, that is just a compilation of his conversations with Mick Foley, Jim Ross, and Bruce Pritchard. Um, and here's another thing. If you ever, I'm sure most people have seen the F Dave Meltzer shirts that sometimes pop up. Well, those are, those. <laughs> I'm pretty sure those are sold by Bruce Pritchard <laughs> and uh, as part of the something to wrestle like uh, collection. And the reason there is this blood feud, so to speak, I don't think really either one of them besides Bruce's like on, on air character. Uh, I don't think really any, either of them lean into it too much, but the reason why there was this big feud is that one of the very first episodes of something to wrestle was about the Montreal screw job. And Dave Meltzer, you know, ran down what he believed to be inaccuracies on it. And it, it caused this huge blow up between the two of them, I guess. And that's why you have this rivalry between them. So like the impacts are very oddly far reaching. (laughs) Yeah. And it's, it's, it's just, it's one of those seminal moments in wrestling, you know, I mean, you can, uh, you can talk about in our, just in our lifetime, you know, you can go all the way back to Bruno and Pedro and the first super card in Shea Stadium. But in our lifetime, you have Hogan slams the giant. Warrior beats Hogan. Hogan drops the leg, bash at the beach. But, and you know, you, you say those few words to that small phrase and everyone knows what you're talking about. But maybe standing out above all of them, you just say Montreal. And if you're having a conversation about wrestling everyone knows what you're talking about yep yep well uh john i think we've really covered down on it pretty hard um we've covered the essential facts we talked about some weird things um whether it be scripted or not we talked about screw job history uh any other like tidbits that you found in your research that we uh that we didn't cover just the f- the the impact that it had on earl hebner like now he yeah. leans into it a little bit. Like you can you can now get a turnbuckle pad signed by Earl Hebner that says like, "You're damn right I did." As in, yeah, <laughs> I called for the bell. But as recently as, and I, I I meant to go back and watch this. I just ran out of time. I think it was in that Dark Side episode where he talks about when they approached him to speak to him. Because they were meeting, you know, I guess maybe he was, you know, doing whatever he was done, impact or whatever. He was going to be in Canada. So because it was in Canada and someone wanted to talk to him about Montreal, he went there not 100% sure someone wasn't going to try to beat the shit out of him or literally kill him. Yeah. And this was 20 plus years later. 
And when they did interview him in Dark Side, he was teary-eyed. Yeah. It really impacted him. And, it, and you know, I don't know what the circumstances were behind him leaving WWF, but I, I don't think he was really much the same after that. Well, I mean, you swear on your children, which I'm not a parent, but I, I presume that's about as heavy-handed as you can get in putting your honor out there. And then, you know, moments later, if not, you know, maybe days later, but it might have been as little as, you know, minutes or hours later, your boss comes to you and puts you in a situation where you have to go back on your word to someone who is a genuine, not just a colleague that you trust each other, but a genuine friend. Earl and Brett had a, you know, deeper relationship than just, oh, yeah, he's the guy who works most of my matches. Yeah. And Earl swore on his kids. And Brett went into the match with a clear head because he knew he had Earl's word. Right. All right. Well, with that said, I think uh, I think we could wrap things up, John. Um, great conversation about the Montreal Screwjob today. Hope everybody enjoyed it. Uh, yes. Don't forget, you can subscribe to the Daily Wrestling News Show on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, whatever, uh, to get your daily dose. We usually only go five to ten minutes. Today's episode is 45 and you got video if you want to watch it on uh, Facebook or whatever, if you're hearing this in the, uh, in the audio version. So that said, uh, John and I will actually be recording uh, about tales from the territory in about an hour. So if you want more uh, <laughs> daily wrestling news show content, come back. We're gonna be talking about Polynesian pro wrestling. And if you're looking for it in the audio feed, it'll be the next one. So, all right, John, see ya till next time.